Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. While you're doing so, I did want to call attention to the new pulpit and cross. Uh, Barb Cow found a man by the name of Reuben who constructed both of these. And he was in the first service, did a marvelous job, and we're grateful for uh, his work and our benefit. So it's been good to, uh, to have this made and donated to the church, and it's, it's uh, something I'm looking forward to using on a regular basis. With that said, uh, let's now hear the word of the living God in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19 through verse 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. By the way, that's the only good men there are, those who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians, or Christ ones. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them stood up, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. It is a light unto our uh, path and a lamp unto our feet. And we pray that we might hear your word today and that it might find its way into our hearts, that it would produce fruit within us, that you would truly speak to us and stir our hearts with joy at what you have to say to us. And we pray your blessings upon our time together, and may we be different people because we sat under the ministry of the Word. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have today an account in the book of Acts of the gospel breaking new barriers, moving into new territories, and in particular into pure Gentile paganism. Here the gospel moves 
not just to the Jews, not just to the half-Jews, the Samaritans, not just to the Ethiopian eunuch, and not just to Cornelius and his household, but here we see the gospel move into a whole new realm to the Gentiles. And these Gentiles are not God-fearers. These are the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were the Greeks, also known as pagans. They were engaged in all different kinds of mystery religions. But here we see a breakthrough in a very large and profound way. The city of Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. Only Rome and Alexandria were larger. And Antioch was the capital city of Syria. The city officials uh, occur, uh, encouraged immigration and even offered Jews full citizenship. Thus, there were a very large and vital communities of Jews, Greeks, Romans, Asians, and Africans. What a multicultural, multilingual group of people residing in a city. And Antioch was known for that. It was known for being a place that attracted people from all over the known world. And thus, it was a city that had, uh, it was located on the Orontes River. But it was also a city that was very pagan and very immoral. Uh, one of the largest prostitution uh, rings, if that's the word I would use, uh, was located outside of the city in a grove. And even Rome, when it began its decadence and downfall, said that the Orontes River of Antioch had finally flown into the Tiber and polluted the whole city of Rome. So you know you're talking about some severe depravity and sexual degradation if you're saying the river in Antioch poisoned the Tiber in Rome. So Antioch's a very interesting place, a lot like Las Vegas, uh, very much like Las Vegas, very multicultural. But what was the distinctive feature of the way in which the gospel was communicated at Antioch? And was the preaching different from what we've heard so far? Well, the earliest evangelists that were in Antioch were mavericks, since most of them came uh, from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, most of the missionaries to this point were Christian, uh, gave the Christian message only to the Jews. But several daring pioneers preached to the Greeks the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was distinctive because it had never been done before. And on any kind of scale, and of course, Peter had just seen with his own eyes God convert a Gentile centurion and his household. But no one had acted on this strategically yet. Nobody had really decided to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And when Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans, that was a bold move. But the Samaritans were very close cousins of the Jews, as you know. They were racially mixed, half-Jews. And they shared with the Jews a belief in the God of the Bible. At Antioch, however, the gospel is taken to sheer pagans as a group for the first time. This would have meant a very new approach to articulating the message. 
Jesus could not have been proclaimed in Antioch as the hope of Israel as Peter had done everywhere he went. We're uh, not given any details, but they did call him Lord, the Greek word kurios. And many of the Greek and pagans at that time were flocking to the mystery religions, which sought to connect devotees to a divine Lord or kurios who could guarantee salvation and immortality. Now, Jesus is being proclaimed as that Lord. And the results of this ministry were swift and significant. Instead of an isolated Ethiopian or a Roman centurion, now the Gentiles were coming to faith on a large scale. The Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand is a euphemism. God doesn't have physical body parts. So it's a description of his power, and his power had taken the gospel and unusually blessed it so that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So what is a Christian? How does one become a Christian? Well, you believe something and you turn to the Lord. A Christian is a person who believes something that is, they look outside of themselves to someone else and trust and rely upon someone else other than themselves. And then they turn from a lifestyle that is divorced from God's presence, as it were, and they turn back to the Lord and return to Him. And so a Christian is someone who both believes and repents. And they are... Uh, Absolutely both are inclusive within each other. You cannot have faith without repentance, and you can't really have repentance without faith. But that's how a person becomes a Christian. A person becomes aware of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has come, he has done something, not for himself, but for sinners. He is the friend of sinners. And so he came to save, he came to redeem, He's a physician who came for the sick. He's a, a savior who came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. And so he comes and he does everything necessary to make us right with God. And so becoming a Christian is no longer relying upon yourself to be a good person. It's not relying upon your obedience to whatever moral code you have. It's not being a person who wishes others well, who gives to charity, who likes people, who's a generally nice person. No, a Christian is someone who has come to the end of themselves and looks outside of themselves and velcros, as it were, or embraces the Savior. That's a Christian. And so that is what happened with these pagans. And the reason it happened, we're going to talk about it in a few moments, is because uh, of the grace of God. There are probably two reasons that Barnabas was sent to this ministry. And the first reason he was sent by the Jerusalem church was to look for evidence of the grace of God. And basically this was quality control again from Jerusalem, but it's not a bad thing. Certainly some of the people who sent Barnabas were suspicious and negative about the astounding innovation. The Jerusalem Christians could not believe in the authenticity of the new work without one of their own sort of signing off on it. Nevertheless, it is good to have accountability for missionaries. 
The second reason Barnabas' visit in verse 23b is to encourage the church, to encourage them to, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Young Christians uh, also needed encouragement. They needed evaluation. They needed accountability. And they needed mature leaders. So in summary, the components of Barnabas's ministry were to evaluate, to accreditate, and to joyously affirm and encourage the believers there. But we know that when Barnabas got there, listen, look at this. This is amazing. Uh, when he, he came to Antioch, what happened? He came and saw what? The grace of God. What does it mean to see the grace of God? Because the grace of God is usually not a substance. It's not something that you can visually see, but he saw it. And he realized that something dramatically had changed these people. Something had turned them around, and they were full of life. The outrageous of God, outrageousness of God's indiscriminating grace always gets people stirred up. That's because real grace is simply inexplicable. It is inappropriate. It's out of the box. It's out of bounds. It's offensive to righteous people. It's excessive. Too much. Given to the wrong people and all those things. Grace is the most important concept in the Bible and in Christianity and in the world. It is most clearly expressed in the promises of Jesus Christ. And it's embodied in Him. The deepest message of the ministry of Jesus and even the entire Bible is the grace of God to sinners and sufferers. There's only one God who saves and there's only one way He saves and that's by grace. And we all ought to jump up and down and be amazed by that. About grace, you can call it what you like, you can categorize it, you can vivisect it, you can qualify, quantify, or dismiss it, and none of it will make grace anything other than precisely what grace is. It is audacious, it is unwarranted, it is unlimited. I remember the first uses I ever had of the word grace were it was something we said at a meal before we ate. We said grace. Other people talk about grace as being charm or attractiveness or elegance or beauty. But Scripture tells us that grace isn't a personal virtue at all. Rather, it is undeserved favor lavished on an inferior by a superior. Grace is unmerited favor or a kindly disposition that leads to acts of kindness toward others. This is the grace God gives to us. J. Gresham Machen writes, The very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. The grace of God which depends not one whit upon anything in man, but is absolutely undeserved, resistless, and sovereign. Christian ex Christian's experience, or Christian experience, depends for its depth and for its power upon the way in which the blessed doctrine is cherished in the depths of the heart, the center of the Bible. 
The center of Christianity is found in the grace of God. And the necessary corollary of the grace of God is salvation through faith alone. The man who wrote what I just read was J. Gresham Machen. He wrote a book called Christianity Versus Liberalism. You should read that book because it's just as relevant today as it was the day he wrote it in the 30s of the last century. But Machen was on his deathbed and he was breathing his last breaths and he leaned over to say something. Of course, everybody wants to hear what the dying are saying right before they go. And you know what he said? He said, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Now, only a theologian would say that. Only a theologian would say that. But what did he mean when he said that? He was really saying, thank you, God, for your grace. And here's what your grace is. Jesus obeyed your will. He obeyed your law. He actively took my place, stood in my stead, uh, was baptized, obeyed every jot and tittle of your law in order that he could give his obedience to me and he could take my disobedience upon him and suffer for it. See, that's too good to be true. And that's what grace is. Grace is always too good to be true. And you're always, if you're like me, looking for a catch in there somewhere. It couldn't be that much good news, but it is that much good news. See, that's, this is the biggest secret. People don't get it. They want to turn Christianity into a religion. And Jesus was the most anti-religious leader on the history of the planet. But that's why Majin says, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. Meaning, I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus has done in my place. And so when we think about grace, we need to think about it in that way. It is the love of God shown to very unloving and unlovely people. It is the peace of God given to the restless hearts. It is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is most needed and best understood in the midst of sin and suffering and brokenness. Until we see our sin, grace means nothing to us. Why do I need grace if I think I'm okay? If I think I'm a good person? If I think I have no need? You know, here's how, here's how most people, if they even believe in grace, here's how they say what grace is. They say, look, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I've lived my life the best I can. I've tried to treat other people well. I've tried to have integrity. I've tried to have honesty. And wherever I screwed up, wherever I came up short, God will make up the difference by his grace. That ain't grace. That is not grace. Not even close. Grace doesn't even begin in that story. Grace is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. If I could save myself, Jesus should never have come. But he had to come because I needed to be saved. So, that's grace. That's grace. The shorthand for grace is, uh, well, we live in a world, too, that is counterintuitive in terms of grace. We live in a world in which you earn, you deserve, you merit. And all of these result in some kind of judgment. Condemnation comes by merit. 
Salvation comes only by grace. Condemnation is earned by man. Salvation is given by God. That is why everyone wants and needs grace. Judgment kills. Only grace makes alive. The shorthand for grace is mercy, not merit. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Jesus took what I deserved. He gave me what he deserves. That is the sweet exchange. That is the alien righteousness Martin Luther talked about all of the time. It is God's gift. Karma, by the way, is all about getting what you deserve. Christianity teaches that getting what you deserve is death and no hope and judgment. Grace is the polar opposite of karma. While everyone desperately needs it, grace is not about us. Grace is fundamentally a word about God. It is, is His uncoerced initiative and pervasive, extravagant demonstration of care and favor. Michael Horton writes, In grace, God gives nothing less than Himself. Grace, then, is not a thing or a substance mediating between God and sinners, but is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Grace is personified in the person of Christ. Grace is the very essence and being of God. God himself is in it. He reveals the very essence in this streaming forth of grace, and it is inexhaustible. That is why we find such superlative adjectives used by the Apostle Paul to describe grace. Such adjectives as an abundance of grace, sufficient grace, surpassing riches of grace. In the Christian tradition, there are many adjectives that have accompanied the word grace. Amazing, free, scandalous, surprising, special, inexhaustible, incalculable, wondrous, mysterious, overflowing, abundant, irresistible, costly, extravagant, and more. My favorite adjective comes from the French reformer John Calvin, who spoke of gratuitous grace. Now, what is gratuitous? Gratuitous is the idea of something being unwarranted or uncalled for. One of my father's favorite ways in rebuking me as a child, which usually led to cor corporal punishment, <laughs> was what you did, son, was totally uncalled for. Meaning, there is no reason in the world you can justify what you've done. That's what grace is. We can't justify getting it. We can't say, look at me, Lord, there's this thing in me that really deserves to get this undeserved stuff. But it's gratuitous. It's totally gratuitous. It's totally unwarranted, which makes it totally beautiful. Faith begins with a promise, and it rests in it, and it ends in it. God loves us with gratuitous grace, and that's really the only kind of grace there is. And once you add anything to it, you have degraced or disgraced grace. It's got to be 100% pure. Otherwise, it's not grace. So if you add an if to it, or if you add a plus to it, you've lost it. You have disgrace, grace. One of my favorite uh, sort of off-the-wall people, who is a chef and a theologian and Episcopalian, 
or as we called them where I grew up, whiskey pagans. But he's a, he's a good guy. His name is Robert Capone. I don't agree with everything. He leans toward antinomianism, but I'll forgive him that because he helps me understand some grace. He said this. He said, the world is by no means averse to religion. In fact, it's devoted to it with a passion. It will buy any recipe for salvation so long as that formula leaves the responsibility for cooking up salvation firmly in human hands. The world is drowning in religion. It is lying full fathom 40 in the cults of spiritual growth, physical health, psychological self-improvement, or ethical probity, not to mention the religions of money, success, upward mobility, sin prevention, and cooking without animal fat. But it's scared out of its wits by any mention of the grace that takes the world home gratis. Religion always tries to tame and domesticate grace, but grace is antithetical to religion. Two more quotes, and I'll get back to the text. The two quotes are this. T.F. Torrance says, Grace is costly to man because it lays the axe to the root of all his cherished possessions and achievements, not the least in the realm of his religion, for it is in religion that man's self-justification may reach its supreme and most subtle form. Religion can be the supreme form taken by human sin. And then the French reformer Jacques Ellul also says, grace is the hardest thing for us to be reconciled to because it implies the renouncing of our pretensions, our power, our pomp, and our circumstance. It is the opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. Grace reveals our natural pride of self-sufficiency as well as the pride of spiritual progression. Nothing, nothing is more devastating to spiritual pride than grace. Therefore, our response to God's grace includes the recognition of our sinfulness and the rejection of all confidence in ourselves and our abilities to fix it. Jesus was the most anti-religious teacher to ever grace this planet. Why? Because he saves by grace. Because he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And His grace comes to us like the waves to the seashore. It is inexhaustible. And when Barnabas got to Antioch to check it out, he knew he was seeing the real thing because what did he do? He could smell it. He could taste it. The grace of God was there changing these pagans into people who love Jesus and one another and reconciling and dropping the barriers and the walls between ethnicities and cultures and races. They were becoming out of the many one. And it was amazing to witness. And so Barnabas goes and he sees the grace of God. He sees the changed character. He sees these people really worshiping. And so the first effect of his ministry was on the whole church at large. Um, if he had been a very narrow-minded man, he could have turned the rest of the church against this new form of gospel communication and mission. He could have split this church very easily. But he was a large man. 
And God had seen to it that this emissary sent from Jerusalem at this crucial moment was a wise and generous man. And so when he went to the Antioch church, he was overwhelmed with joy. And he began the teaching ministry that was not so much prophetic, that is challenging and convicting, but priestly, encouraging and confirming. And he called them to remain true to the Lord. And that meant he was telling them that they had found the Lord and were following truly. And so he encouraged them to remain true and that God would produce endurance in them. And the result of his priestly ministry is very striking because in verse 24, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And they always are where the grace of God is being preached, where the gospel is really being preached. And I just think most people do not understand what the good news is. Because if the good news is not grace, then it's not good news. It's only more bad news. And that's the only thing that makes it good news. And so we see Barnabas here. He didn't do evangelism. He just encouraged and stirred up the joy and love that was already in the heart of these new believers. He didn't start an EE class. He just encouraged these guys. He supported them, and they were stimulated to continue doing the evangelism they had already done. So here we see clergy training lay people and lay people doing evangelism. But Barnabas did a third thing that I think made a huge difference in how the gospel took off like wildfire among the Gentiles. He built a ministry team. He developed new uh, leadership. It is a sign of his remarkable humility that Barnabas would want to share his ministry with Saul of Tarsus, who is eventually become St. Paul. Remember, Barnabas was the only mature leader in the whole city of Antioch. There was nobody else. He was surrounded by hordes of adoring new believers, and his ministry was bearing enormous fruit. But instead of consolidating his own preeminence, Barnabas sought out Saul, a man who he knew was multi-talented, multi-gifted, more talented than Barnabas was himself. And so Barnabas knew that the ministry would not multiply if he choked it with his own hands and he sought out a man who would outshine him considerably. Why did Barnabas seek out Saul? Well, he knew about his talent. He also knew that he was a cosmopolitan man in terms of education and breadth of experience. He was a natural for the sophisticated multi-ethnic city. But Barnabas also knew that Paul's original calling by God was to go to the Gentiles. At any rate, Barnabas is a great model to us of ministry. He humbly shares his ministry with potential leaders. He doesn't work alone but in a team, and he doesn't hold on to ministries but raises up new leadership and gives the responsibilities away. And so the Antioch Church was the first place that Christians were called Christians, little Christ or Christ ones. That means these people were so attached to and magnifying the person of Christ that even the pagans that looked at them said they, they adore Christ. That's all they talk about is Jesus. They adore Christ. And so the Antioch church was the first place that the gospel had created a 
a totally or uh, truly new humanity out of many different nationalities. Before, when they were outside, the world saw a group of Christians meeting together. They saw only Jews, and they figured that this was just some sect or variety of Judaism. It is also true that if the outside world had only seen Greeks together or Romans worshiping together, they would have figured that it was some kind of variety Greek religion or Roman religion. The world believes that religion is just a function of your culture or your family or your class. But when they saw something absolutely new, people coming to faith across cultural, racial, and class boundaries, when they saw the rich worshiping with the poor, they realized something unique and different was happening here. The multicultural shape of the Antioch church seriously undermined the popular skepticism that believes all religion to be a part of one's culture. For example, I'm Catholic because I'm Italian. Or I'm Presbyterian because I'm Scottish. Or I'm Muslim because I'm Bosnian. There was no more powerful witness to the unique power of Christianity than its inclusiveness. The many reasons why the Antioch church grew and the multicultural congregations of the Greco-Roman cities grew even more rapidly than Jewish churches. Barriers that separated people. This is how grace works. Once you see there's nothing you can do to deserve anything, it's all gift, it's all grace, then that deconstructs and limits the whole idea of race, culture, class. All of that goes away, or it should go away if you truly get the gospel. Barriers that separated people did not just come down as a result of gospel preaching, but the broken barriers were actually a major part of gospel communication. They shocked onlookers. No religion had ever produced this. How could this religion then as seen uh, as a simply the power grab move of a particular culture or strata of society? It could not. That is why only in Antioch, the believers were called Christians, and only there did the world realize that something remarkable had been unleashed in the empire. But other religions believe in justification by works. That is, all other religions believe in justification by works. There's a religious leader. A re religious leader has teaching. If you obey the teaching, then you get in. Everything goes well for you. That's justification by works. And thus they encourage people to have pride in their cultures and in their customs. But the gospel teaches that we are sinners saved by grace alone. It undermines the need to look down on other cultures. It humbles us and it keeps us from turning our cultural customs into absolutes. There are many ways the gospel undermines social barriers race, class, and pride. And there are many other ways to think of that. But finally, we see something remarkable in verses 27 and following. We see that a prophet came down from Jerusalem. His name was Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. Historians have verified that this actually happened. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They, this, it wasn't a top-down, it wasn't a request from Jerusalem, it wasn't the Jews reaching out, but rather the people themselves heard the need, the very people that rejected them so often, called them dogs, were very exclusive toward them, are the very people they reached out to and sent relief through the hand of Barnabas and Saul. How do you know you get in the gospel when you reach out to people who before were enemies, who before were opposed to you. The gospel had so changed these pagan hearts. Rather than rejoicing that Jerusalem was suffering in Judea, they sent relief. Only the gospel can do that to people. Only the gospel can transcend all of the hatred and enmity and do that for people. And that's because the gospel is the only hope we have. The only hope we have of changing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth as we have seen it today in the church at Antioch. Lord, may we be, by your grace, a church like this, filled with people all kinds of people, all kinds of races, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of ethnicities. And may we see your grace take all of that diversity and bring unity to it because nothing else can. We can try to force it on people. We can try to preach it to people. We can try to cram it down people's throats. But the only power that can make people of differing worlds come together is grace. Because grace undermines every reason we hate each other. And we thank you for that grace. Because it undermined every reason we had for hating you. And it, it enabled us to come to you and live with you forever. Now Lord as we continue to worship we pray your blessings upon us. As we come to the Lord's table and we pray in Jesus name. Amen.